that Steel City has definitely played a league of being supportive to many members of the community who maybe didn't have support elsewhere. And that that's really critical because it helps build a safe space for more people. Um, and I know there are people who have joined the league who are maybe questioning or struggling with their identity, either whether or not they identified as LGBTQIA or had, had some sort of identity in that domain, or whether they were comfortable being out about it. And I think one of the things that the league does and has done for a long time it has said, you can be yourself here. That is not an issue for us when you are here. And we've had people who have joined the league who have in the process of being a member come out about whatever aspect of their identity. And I think that, um, I think that they're probably something powerful about situating yourself among others who have maybe gone through some of the things that you've gone through and have um, helped to try to make a safe space and then to try to do the same to pay it forward for others is powerful. Welcome back, or welcome to the Grass Volleyball Podcast. I'm Ned Batchison. I'm a volleyball player, a grass volleyball player. I'm a grass volleyball tournament director. I'm also the founder of Pittsburgh Grass Volleyball here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we do grass doubles, leagues, tournaments, and pickup for adults of all skill levels. And the whole idea behind the podcast is just to sit down with people to tell volleyball stories and have deep, meaningful conversations with people in the volleyball community. And in this podcast, I'm talking with Andrew Twig and Matthew Kramer, who are the president and vice president of Steel City Volleyball League, located here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, SCVL for short. Steel City's mission is to provide LGBTQIA plus people along with allies an opportunity to learn, play, and grow in the organized sport of recreational and competitive volleyball. The evolution of SCVL is pretty, pretty fascinating. They actually started out as an informal group getting together, playing grass volleyball in the 80s at Shenley Park here in Pittsburgh. And they've evolved certainly a lot over time to become a 501c7 nonprofit social organization running an indoor adult league with two seasons and over 300 participants per season. And the growth over the last 40 years has been pretty, pretty astounding. In keeping with tradition, the group does still get together to play grass volleyball at Chenley Park in the spring and summertime. What, what kind of stands out to me the most from the conversation with, with Andrew and Matthew and about SCVL in general is just, just the deep impact that the league has had on its participants beyond just playing the sport of volleyball. The fact that you could be someone that's struggling with who you are and you know in joining the league and meeting like-minded people, it actually helps you find yourself or maybe even just helps you be more confident in who you are. It's a pretty, pretty amazing thing they're doing. On a personal note, to add a little more context to some of the podcast where you're probably wondering why we're talking about what we're talking about, Andrew is an assistant professor at the School of Design at Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh, and Matthew is a science and operations officer at the National Weather Service and is a certified referee. And with that, let's jump into the conversation with Andrew and Matthew. Well, we've talked about doing this for a while now, so 
Yeah. I appreciate that you guys wanted to sit down and have a conversation. How are you both holding up with uh, COVID situation? I would say I'm doing all right, all things considered. <laughs> yeah, very little's changed for me here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, aside from aside from playing less volleyball, I'm, I'm right. I've always been introvert. I've always been a homebody, so this is uh, this is actually nothing out of the ordinary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Um, but what work-wise, Matthew, is that are you able to just do whatever you're you're you know normally doing at home? For the most, most I, mean, I go in one at least one day a week if not two um depending on on whether i'm covering a forecast shift or not um hmm. but uh, i mean it's, it's not as easy to do what i need to do from home um a lot of my job is involved with training and um science conveyance to to my forecasters so um there's a people side of it that i've got to interact with people um a little more than most people uh, do in the office otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it, no, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's harder to get a lot of the stuff I need to get done, done at home. Some, some of it can be, some of it can't be. And I go, I go in every cup, every few days and get that stuff done that I can't do at home. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. How about you, Andrew, at, at, at CMU? Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all three of my classes are listed for hybrid delivery, meaning students can be there or in person or joined by Zoom. Um, I actually have one of those classes, we all collectively agreed to do the whole thing online. Um, the other two have been blended, although as we come into the as we come into the last stretch of the semester, like after Thanksgiving, everything's fully online. Um, so, you know, and, um, and, and my, the attendance in the classes is anywhere between 60, uh, I would say 50 to 60% in person with the balance being um, on Zoom. So it's a mm -hmm. little, it's challenging teaching certain things that way. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's challenging teaching to people who are there and are not physically like that actual aspect is very hard. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, makes sense. You um, work on cybersecurity stuff at home or is this is like, is this something you go to the office for routinely? So, yeah. Um, well, I, I, even, even before COVID, I, I was able to work from home. Like I, I oversee like a group of customers. So I just have calls with them just to make sure that things are going like going well with the software that they're using of ours. So yeah, work-wise things have been pretty, pretty unchanged, I guess for me too. So we're all, we're all kind of in the, in the same boat there. Interestingly. One of the, the some of the few. <laughs> yeah, we're lucky. So now SCVL, um, that was like mid season, right? When COVID hit. So that was what, like mid March, I think, when when things started to change. And you guys were definitely in the swing of of the season, right? What all what all happened there? How'd that all go down? Yeah, we had. Um... We had Kramer, what, maybe five, maybe four or five weeks of regular season play and then and then playoffs. So we, you we, know, were, in week, we were in week six or seven, I think, by that point. Okay, yeah. But so, um, and, and our, our season, Ned, um, runs kind of off a 10-week model, although I think the reality of how we had to program that out with GRIT this past season, our, the facility that we play in, 
that was actually stretched out over 11 weeks because of what hours were when. Point mm -hmm. being, we were a little more than halfway through, um, not including playoffs. Um, and so, yeah, we had to very quickly make a decision to um, suspend the season. Uh, and after we suspended it, I mean, everybody was really good about it, meaning we didn't hear anything. I want to say we actually were we, I think we might have even been, were we scheduled to be off that weekend in March right before everything went into lockdown anyway, Kramer? Is that right? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it was March, what was it, the March, March 15th, 16th time yeah. frame? Yeah. Um, no, I think we were still supposed still to play. Still scheduled to play. Yeah. We, yeah. So at any rate, um, so we had, you know, our season was cut short about partway through. Um, and then, and then, of course, later on in the summer, uh, maybe maybe sometime in June or, or early July, with the way things were going, we realized that we were not going to be able to play out the rest of that season, even as things began to open up. Mm -hmm. uh, we just made the call as a, as a board, we made a call that even as things went into green, um, there wasn't any feasible way under the um, county and state guidelines to successfully finish off a season. And part of that, I mean, there were a number of things that, that played into that. Part of that was sort of a, the community-driven aspect of the organization, wanting to make sure that we're really being caring for everybody. And, and part of that was a simple logistics thing. You know, if you can only have 25 people <laughs> at an event, quote unquote, at a time, and we, and we have to run five courts over the course of four or five hours every Sunday, that's not really, <laughs> it's not really sustainable for us to, um, you know, play out the rest of the season under those mechanics. Right. Yeah. With, with 325 people, that would be, uh, that would be extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then you guys made the, the announcement recently too about the, the winter season, right? Yeah. We made that announcement uh, maybe at late July or early August, because that season typically kicks off around mid August with um, a ratings process. And then we get into the regular season play. So we had to make that decision pretty early. I, I, my, my memory is, I never trust my memory fully with this kind of stuff, but my memory is that we had made a decision not to play out the rest of the spring season. And then we're in talks with the facility about what the fall might look like. And we had to make a decision quickly for them. So we did not have a lot of time, um, downtime between making those two decisions, if, if my memory serves. Although mm -hmm. I think I trust Kramer more with, <laughs> with timeline stuff than I trust myself. Well, that's that, that sounds about right. Um, just uh, we we spend a good deal of the summer typically planning for the fall season, so uh, we had to make a make a forecast as to whether the guidelines would allow us to be even able to do that, and whether whether as a as an uh, organization with uh, you know, potentially susceptible members, um, whether. Uh, whether to actually, whether it's the right thing to do to even try, mm -hmm. uh, which we decided was was not in, uh, in in the spirit of our our community. Right. Have you guys given any thought to trying to make it work outside? Because you know, obviously, everything that we've learned, being indoors, large groups of people, long periods of time—that's the that's the worst place you can be, right? But um, because you know, I thought with our league we were able to to you know do so in a in a pretty pretty darn safe manner. Granted, we're 
much, much smaller than, than your league was. We were something like 60 people versus 325. But yeah, yeah I mean, I think- it, that would obviously totally change your, your whole model. And, and yeah, I, I don't know if you've given that any thought, but. We, we actually did. And um, well, I should say we typically run informal pickup in the summer anyway. So we mm-hmm. run um, in a normal summer, the league runs a Tuesday night pickup for our sort of higher skill players and then a Sunday afternoon pickup for anybody. And it's open also to non-league members. So it's basically like if you want to come play, come play with us. Um, and if you're at a certain level, you can join us for the Tuesday night play. Uh, there, we, we talked about doing that. And we even went through the process of um, working on a liability waiver, but we ultimately decided, um, so regarding the informal play even, we decided that the the liability concerns were too great. You know, we're a 501C, seven or eight, I can never remember. (laughs) Um, But but we're we're a classified organization under the IRS um, as as a nonprofit social org. And we just thought that the liabilities were too great for us to reasonably run some sort of outdoor thing and the logistics were complex and by the time we started looking at doing that for example you know ned i know you were you were planning your um planning your sort of two division doubles and even considering um a quads thing and we we did not you know we part of it part of it i think is that we didn't want to try to um, overlap with anybody who was doing anything else grass related in any formal manner. And then the last part of that is, yeah, the logistics. I mean, we do own a couple of grass nets. I think we have three or four in our ownership and a number of our members own nets, but the logistics of finding a place and time, even then, as you recall, under state guidelines, I think there were limits on outdoor as you were getting started, maybe to a hundred people or something in the County. I don't, I don't remember those, but the logistics just did not make sense for us. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. The size, size, um, size requirements. Yeah, I think it was, well, we play at South Park, and that's Allegheny County, and it, and it was 50, I think, there. Maybe it, it went from 100 down to 50. So, we, you know, with, with us only having 60 people, we could, we could do it in shifts. So it made, you know, certainly made sense for us. But um, yeah, that, that totally makes sense, given the, the, large scale of, of SCVL versus the, the tiny little um, league that we did. So that makes sense. I would add maybe one other thing um, about that too, you know, as we looked at the fall and realized we would not be able to formally run a season. One of the things that we noticed happening was that people were independently, in addition to what had happened over the summer, people are independently organizing some pickup. Mm-hmm. So we have a number of people who've continued to run um, outdoor pickup on grass um a couple of a couple of days a week uh some of some of that's being um, put out to the league so we have one member in particular who has been basically advertising in this marketplace that we have for people to pick up subs and pick up people for for tournaments etc one member in particular has been really vocal about inviting people to the the pickups that, that she has been organizing uh so we saw a kind of informal thing happening that seem to be engaging, maybe not everyone in our community, but without taking on the liabilities of the organization, it seemed like some of those um, some of those needs were being met, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, totally. That 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 yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, let's let's um, 
let's take a step back. I want to understand how you both got into volleyball originally. Is there a, a good story behind how each of you got into the, the sport? Kramer, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I started playing in high school. Um, back in Connecticut, we, we were actually the, the uh, founding members of the boys volleyball team in my high school. Um, and uh, it's, it's the one sport I have uh, <laughs> any skill at. So it's, uh, that's really what I stuck with through the years. Um, Wait, can little... I interject? Can I interject just to say, um, Ned, you should ask Matthew how tall he is and why volleyball might have been a natural sport for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm six... <laughs> um, so, so how yeah. tall are you, Matthew? <laughs> I'm six foot six. Um, and, um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's either that or basketball when you're that tall. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. I, I tried basketball in fifth and sixth grade and did not uh, do very well with it. Um, so volleyball was kind of a natural fit at that point. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then I uh, just took some time off from it in college after high school and uh, got back into community volleyball uh, once, I, uh, once I got out of grad school and uh, I've been doing it ever since. Yeah, I actually, um, I really didn't play until I joined Steel City at all. So my sister was into volleyball, like, um, like pickup and whatnot. Uh, in high school, she did not play uh, on a team. But she actually joined Steel City years before I lived in Pittsburgh. So we grew up in the region, but I was living in Chicago post college. And she had actually joined Steel City for a couple of years, um, and was no longer a member by the time I joined. But I joined because um, I, I met, I made some friends, one of whom was on the board at the time, um, Joe Prince, and Joe invited me to, um, you know, a couple of social things where I met some members of the league, and a number of them kind of encouraged me to come check it out. And so I joined seven, I want to say it's seven years ago now, um, and, and found not only a really good community, but also a sport that I happen to like and that I've been able to get better at, um, which has been really uh, fantastic. You're saying you joined SCVL seven years ago? Yeah, and that was the first I had played volleyball in any formal context. I mean, you know, the credits mm -hmm. still community volleyball. I think I played one season of like intramural in college where there were four or five of us on a team and we did not know, <laughs> know what we were doing. But um, Steel City had, had such a I mean, informal in terms of the, the access, meaning making it very easy for people to join, but had a very formal structure that made it easy for people to get in, get involved, get to know people and get better um, if, they, if they wanted to develop um, skills. Mm -hmm. Matthew, how about you? How long have you been um, playing at, playing at SC, SCVL? Um, I joined just before uh, Andrew did um, in, what, gosh, what was it? January of 13. So. Um, also probably going on eight years here. Um, and I, I got introduced to it serendipitously through, um, through someone who, who works in my field, um, who, who I just happened to meet through, through my, uh, my job. And uh, he, he invited me to come down and take a look at the league um, one Sunday in the fall of 2012. And that was all I needed. <laughs> Signed up the next, uh, the next season. Mm -hmm. No, Kramer, I, I'm looking here. We actually joined at the same time. Um, I, I made my first registration payment at the end of the year of 2012. So we both joined then in January of 13. 
Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's <knew>? crazy. <laughs> the same exact season. And we yeah. and we didn't each other then, but uh, no, and, and we did not play in the same division. I joined at the recreational level. Like I came in at ground zero or <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Like I came in with no skills. Um, and Kramer at the well at the time the, the league also only had three skill divisions. Kramer, I'm assuming you came in at the competitive level. I did. Um, that, that was the first season that uh, we reintroduced the power division um, after having only three divisions. So I was able to, um, I, I ended up right at the top of the competitive division and somebody in the power division dropped out and they needed someone to replace them last minute. Um, so I ended up playing in the power division uh, my first season also. Um, which, uh, you know, we've talked about the league a little bit. It's grown to five divisions now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, when I joined, there were only four. Um, we were reintroducing the fourth. Uh, there actually were three prior to that because of uh, um, a lack of membership at that level to, to really run the league uh, with four divisions. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, Andrew, especially, that you, you know, you hadn't played before you joined SCVL. You know, you started out, like you said, at at the bottom, right? And now, and now you're the president. So, how did how did that talk a little bit about that um, evolution? I mean, I think so. The skill development aside, and and I'm not dismissing what we do from a skill development perspective. Um, I've been involved with a number of organizations over my, or I mean, even even in high school and in my adult life. And um, I think one of the things that I found really appealing about Steel City was that it was a welcoming, about Steel City Volleyball, it was that it was a welcoming community. Um, there was a strong interest on people to be there and there was a level of competence, meaning the board works really hard to make the league run well. And the members um, with very rare exception um, are really good about supporting the board and their efforts without like making a fuss about anything, you know, and what I, I get, I guess what I mean by that is like, it's a fully volunteer run organization. Um, you know, the, the board, everything they do is for no compensation and it is not easy work. So I think what I saw was a group of people who were really committed to um, both the community and um, the sport and that appealed to me as I became more and more invested in both the community and the sport. And so my, my involvement, I, 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 what happened in short was somewhere a couple of years in, maybe two or three years in, I had been um, mentoring some because in the league, one of the things that we do is allow members to play down a division from the division they're rated in. With the, with the idea that they will serve as a mentor to the um, other members on that team. So for example, as a, as a competitive player playing down to the intermediate division, I take on the responsibility of trying to help those intermediate players improve their game if, they're, if they so desire. And so giving them feedback on positioning or technique or whatever as it relates to, as it relates to the game and maybe even as it relates to the culture of the organization. And so I, uh, the league has an end of year member meeting, um, brunch picnic type thing. And they give an award that they gave an award at the time called mother of the year, which was named after a, a member who, who, whose name is John Withrow, who's been with the organization, I think basically since its inception and everybody calls him mother because of how he kind of is very caring, but also stern. <laughs> and I was given the, the mother of the year award and 
and a couple, two mem board members in particular, uh, Jeffrey Kersel and Seymour Genovich said to me, do you want to be involved? Like you really put yourself out there for the organization when you consider joining the board. And there may have been other people who asked me about it as well. Kramer, I don't remember if you were on the board at that time and, and you did too. But, I, um, I'm sure I was and I'm sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so at any rate, um, at any rate, that's kind of how I got involved with the board. Spe speaking of John, are are there still people like original members, original founding members that are still involved? I mean, the, the, the league has been around. It's going to be coming up on 30 years, I think. Yeah, I think it was, it was founded in 82. 82 or 83 is what I was recalling. I'm not, I, yeah, I, I'm 99 it might, it might be 83. I can look that up while we're talking. Uh, John, I think might be, uh, and don't quote me on this, but I think John might be the only original member who's still playing, but we have a number of members who have been playing another time. And one of the other people I almost invited to, to this conversation is um, Paul Semipangpan. And Paul has played in the league for a long time and has actually served on the board once before, took some time off and then rejoined the board around the time I think around the time that I came into my presidency, maybe. So a couple a couple of years ago now. Uh, so there mm -hmm. are people who have been with the organization a long time. And the other thing about it is, I want to say that first season that, that Matthew and I joined, there were maybe only 60 or 70 people in the league. And with the growth to 300 some, we've seen an influx. So it, it is a little hard to keep track of who's been there quote-unquote forever, especially since we ourselves have only been playing in the league for, for a number of years now. So, so yeah, you both started the same, um, the same season. How long have you now, how long have you both been, been president and vice president at this point? So uh, I, I just re-upped my term as president, so I've served two years as president. And I think, Kramer, you, you came on as VP at the same time, is that right? I was vice president when Jeffrey Kersel was president just before you. Um, and then I've continued since then. Um, so I, is this, does that make it my second term or? You would be halfway into your second term then because you, you would have been reelected into your term a year ago. And then I was just reelected into my, my term um, just recently. And by the way, I did find the date. It was 1982 that the that the league was established. So we're coming on 40 then. That's crazy. Yeah, 2022 <laughs> would be 40 years. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. How any, about that? Any uh any special plans for 40? We we haven't we haven't talked about it, but I think right now the idea of special plans would be actually playing playing volleyball and running the league <laughs> given the right. given the current state of things. That's it. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I don't. I don't doubt that we will. I don't doubt that we will figure something out um, for that time. Uh, mm -hmm. No, no doubt. Yeah, that'll, totally. that's a momentous occasion. Yeah, let, let's let's talk a little bit because um, we've already talked a little bit about the the history founded in eighty two. Is that like the groups just started to getting just started getting together in eighty two, or actually the the five hundred one c seven was founded in eighty two? That's the beginning of the organization coming together informally. Okay. So um, I don't, I would have to look back and I, I don't know off the top of my head what year the, the organization was um, 
formally formed, but it started actually as an outdoor pickup group in um, Shenley Park. And so they would basically, I, I think as, as mother has, has told the history, like the sort of oral history, um, they would tie up a net between two trees and play volleyball and people would just come out and play. So it was very informal. And eventually grew to the point where um, it moved through a couple of different, a couple of different venues before ending up at Green Tree um, Sportsplex, which, which is where it was when Matthew and I first joined. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess the thing that I would say is, you know, the world is a different. So, so for the people listening who maybe don't know this, the organization um, has a history as an LGBT, um, as it may have articulated then an LGBT social organization, meaning it was trying to create a safe place for people with LGBT identity to play volleyball with other people. And I know reflecting on like my youth, so I'm, I was, um, I'm 40, how old am I, 43? <laughs> um, I didn't grow up in a place or time where kind of being gay and playing sports was a thing. So, the organization, I think, it, one of the probably common experiences for many, not everybody, but many of the people uh, in the organization was that they probably didn't have many opportunities to engage in any sort of like sport like this because they probably weren't welcome there. And I think what's happened over time, and I think the proof is especially in the big change in our, our membership over the past seven years, is that the both the sort of like natural barriers or whatever you want to call them, the sort of the, the, the human made barriers or cultural barriers to playing sports has been diminished. I know that recreational leagues in the general, like in the US in general have had seen increased popularity, but I also do think there's something about a cultural shift with respect to the acceptance of people with an LGBT identity. And we of course then have evolved over time to articulate our purpose as being inclusive of LGBTQIA, we even put a plus there, as well as anybody who's willing to be an ally ally of, of um, that group to come together, be part of this community and play volleyball. That was probably a lot more than you were asking and I forget the original question now, but um, that's that's a little bit about how the organization kind of came, in, came into being. And we, in 2017, I believe, uh, reworked our bylaws and our, and our sort of mission statement and our vision to um, figure out like a little bit more about I, our identity and what our purpose is and have doubled down on the social aspects as much as um, we are serious about also maintaining the game, the level of play. Yeah, so I think it's one of the unique things about our league is, is the, the goal and mission to balance both the social and uh, competitive sides of, of this community. Um, in a way that, that uh, I think is, is special. Um, so so it's, uh, it's something that I think sets this league apart from other, other leagues. Um, yeah, so the, the league group, you know, it sounds like it started out of necessity, right? Because I guess Pittsburgh and, and probably, you know, many major cities were not LGBTQ friendly. Yeah, at least at least in the eighties comparatively to, to today, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a reasonable assumption. And my and my and my you know, I didn't live in Pittsburgh at the time. I did grow up in Western Pennsylvania, and it it wouldn't surprise me that many of the sports leagues 
whether intentionally or not, and probably more lack of intention around making a safe space than anything else. But it wouldn't surprise me if many of the sports leagues were not particularly welcoming. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about our league is that like, you know, we have a lot of different people in the league. And I, and, and, what, and I think that there's a lot of freedom to kind of be yourself and express yourself. And we even try to make things um, explicitly, I'm gonna use queer shorthand <laughs> instead of saying LGBTQIA plus every single time. Uh, make things queer in terms of our like presentation. So we kind of created us a, a, a seal or a crest for the league when we redid the identity. And that is, if you look at it, there's sort of no missing that this is not your normal volleyball league because there are rainbows and unicorns and stars and <laughs> you know, there's just a lot <laughs> happening. And, uh, so I, it, it, it is a different organization in, in that respect. So how, how is Pittsburgh as a city um, today in terms of being LGBTQIA plus friendly? I mean, I think there are a couple of ways you can see evidence of a lot of change there. Um, although I think the city still has a lot, lot, a lot, has a long way to go. And, and frankly, even I can speak mostly about the gay community having a lot of, you know, room to grow still too. So for example, there is an advisory board that works directly with the mayor on LGBTQIA issues. And that was not something that was in place when I moved to the city in 2006. So there has been formal, um, like, like formal growth in, the, in how the administration is thinking about these issues. Um, the Delta Foundation is a nonprofit that, that ran um, Pittsburgh's Pride uh, celebration each year, and there were a lot of questions over how well and how ethically that organization was doing things and whether or not it was truly inclusive. And we've seen some, um, the emergence of something called People's Pride, which is organized by uh, a group called, uh, primarily organized, I believe, by Sisters PGH, which is a, uh, an organization that explicitly exists to serve and lift up um, Black trans people, Black trans women in particular. And so there's been a sort of opening up of what kind of identities are acceptable, if you will, even within the, even within the community. Um, so I think there's been a, been a lot of growth. And one of the things I think is interesting about Pittsburgh that differs from some other major metropolitan cities, not all of them, but I lived in Chicago for seven years where there's a neighborhood called Boys Town. Boys Town was known as kind of the gay neighborhood and Pittsburgh doesn't really have that. I mean, you know, there are some people who would say Shadyside, for example, with the two um, gay bars that it ha has, 5801 and Element, is kind of like the gay bar and a lot of gay people happen to live there. And I, again, I can't speak to the, the BTQ part because I just, I, I, I don't want to misspeak on behalf of that community. But um, I think it's interesting that we don't have neighborhoods like some other major, major metropolitan areas that are much more designated as quote unquote gay neighborhoods. Although I know even in Chicago, for example, Boys Town is not what it used to be. And we see a lot of people, we've seen a lot of people there moving out of Boys Town into neighborhoods like Andersonville, et cetera, because rents have gone up and those neighborhoods that have been quote unquote pioneered by queer people, um, often there are elements of um, uh, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for there? My brain isn't pulling up the word, but you know, there is some displacement, maybe people lower socioeconomic agency, but then, but then it's like this cycle where, oh, well now other people who just have money want to live in these neighborhoods because they become these really nice neighborhoods with good amenities. So there's a cycle of like constant displacement. I know that's getting way more into probably mm. what you intended <laughs> when you asked that question, but I think it's gentrification is the word I was looking for. It's interesting to think about the way that maybe like, oh, queer people aren't afraid to go into a neighborhood that, that maybe other people won't. But the implication is, well, other people live there <laughs> and that's their neighborhood. And so kind of playing a weird part in this displacement. That's a long detour from your question about how <laughs> Pittsburgh is today. But I think if you look at Pittsburgh by and large, you know, the city is is very proactive about, I think, articulating that this, this is supposed to be a city for everyone. But I had two friends who were beat over the summer. They were attacked by somebody because of their um, gay identity. So it's not perfect. I don't think that's a particularly Pittsburgh problem. Mm -hmm. how, how much of an impact do you think SCVL has, has had on the community? Because um, the, the, there's a video for people that are listening to this. There's a, a video that SCVL put together called More Than Volleyball. That's a great video that we'll, we'll talk more about in, in reference. But yeah, one of the founding members, John Withrow, basically alluded to the fact that SCVL was one of Pittsburgh's first like openly gay communities or openly gay social clubs. So do you, I mean, it, if that's the case, SCVL, I mean, must have had a, a pretty, pretty big impact on that community here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and, I, and, and, and Kramer, I feel like I'm talking a lot. So if I'm talking over you, interrupt me. <laughs> I, you're, you're more the historian than I am. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the irony is I think probably that Kramer has a general, maybe broader general interest in history than I do, but I happen to know a little bit more about, about the city and whatnot. Um, so um, I'm sorry, I digress. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> so yeah, just uh, I'm just curious how much like how much impact do you think SCVL has had on Pittsburgh in general? Because you're, you're, you know, one of your founding members has called yeah. SCVL one of Pittsburgh's first, you know, openly gay communities or openly gay social yeah. clubs. So, I mean, it, so none of this happens in a vacuum, right? Meaning if you look back at history and you look at things that were happening in, in the world. Um, so for example, um, you know, the Stonewall riots happened in 1969. And that was uh, what's considered by many people to be a like key moment in LGBTQ history where a bunch of people basically rioted and said enough. Although if you look at the true history of like um, um, queer rights, and again, I'm using queer shorthand in the country that um, there's a much longer history there of a lot of people doing doing work. And so I think it's fair to say that Steel City has definitely played a league of being supportive to many members of the community who maybe didn't have support elsewhere. And that that's really critical because it helps build a safe space for more people. Um, and I know there are people who have joined the league who are maybe questioning or struggling with their identity, either whether or not they identified as LGBTQ, IA or had had some sort of identity in that domain or whether they were comfortable being out about it. And I think one of the things that the league does and has done for a long time has said, you can be yourself here. That is not an issue for us when you are here. And we've had people who have joined the league who have in the process of being a member come out 
about whatever aspect of their identity. And I think that um, I think that they're probably something powerful about situating yourself among others who have maybe gone through some of the things that you've gone through and have um, helped to try to make a safe space and then to try to do the same to pay it forward for others is powerful. Another thing that I think is really interesting is because people come to us for volleyball, some people come to us, I think, initially because of volleyball, because they hear that we have a good local play and that we have, uh, you know, we have, we're, we're really dedicated to maintaining a level play across these different divisions and we help people play the position that they want to play, etc. I think there are probably people who come to the league or have come to the league and have been surprised by what they experience, maybe having never spent much time around queer people before. And to find, find yourself in an environment where people can unabashedly be themselves um, with respect to that identity can be eye-opening because maybe you've never, maybe you only have ideas about what, what, a, what an LGBTQIA person's like from television or movies or media, what have you. Um, or maybe you've interacted with people who do have that identity but aren't out about it. So to be in a place where you can be surrounded by um, members of that community, I think probably does have a positive effect and helps to make um, make a safe space outside of the community itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, like one, one thing that our group, well, I, I'm just really impressed by the community that you guys, that, that you like both, have fostered and built and you know how your group is so much like a, like a family. I mean, I, I haven't, I guess I haven't, it's maybe unfair for me to, to say that cause I haven't actually participated in the league, but you, you have my word that I'm going to and in, in the future, once things get back to normal. When we can. <laughs> right. Right. I'll hold you to it, Ned. <laughs> yeah. 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 I definitely want to, but yeah, just in, in, impressed by what, you know, what the organization is doing and you guys really are just like uh really like putting on a master class in terms of running a league and, and like league best practices just some of the stuff that you talked about before having like having the sub marketplace the mentorship program i like that you do random team assignments because you get to meet everybody and you know people always tend to to stay in their own clicks right even even within a group of like-minded people so there's just a lot, a lot of really interesting things that scvl is doing that I, i'm just kind of curious is that how it was from the beginning like was there i'm sure there were group get-togethers but you know was it random team assignments were there ratings the mentorship program it's just all of those things come together and it sounds like it just makes a, a really really nice league to participate in so just curious how how it's evolved over time or, or have you know have those things been around for for a while a lot of that has kind of come in uh come through through the, the evolution of the league um as as the mission becomes reinforced or reaffirmed um new ideas come up from the board about how we can uh how we can make our process better in light of that mission um, so, so the, 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 the board constructed teams, uh, that's part of fostering that, as you said, that social interaction and that community that we're trying to promote, um, to, to help, help bridge gaps in, uh, in the community that, uh, 
as you said, people may not uh, they, they they default to their clicks. Uh, so if we can if we can through a, a a convenient way force them out of that that insular bubble into meeting other people in the league, then we're we're achieving our goal. Um, the ratings process. I mean, that's been going on since before I was in the league. I don't know how far back it goes. Um, uh, Twig, do you do you remember? No, no, I don't. But but you know, Kramer, you've been you've been really involved in helping improve. So we actually have a formal rubric that we use when yeah, we rate people. The pro the process has been has evolved a lot since I've joined the league. When um, my first season and Twig's first season in the league, um, ratings were done by hand on little strips of paper, and they were handed to uh, Steve, who was in charge of the ratings at that time. And he had to manually enter all of these into a spreadsheet one at a time over and over for, for however many people were getting rated on a given uh, session. And it, could, it was days of, of data entry. Um, and so uh, part of the, the evolution that the ra our ratings process has undertaken is to go digital, uh, where ratings can now be entered immediately through, through uh, a smartphone. Um, and and all of the processing that happens behind the scenes is now done automatically. So uh, within you guys have within, like an app or how 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 do you do that? Um, it's just kind of savvy use of Google Forms and Google very savvy use. Google Sheets beyond what what they ever intended it to be. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it, I mean it 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 saves us an inordinate amount of time. Um, that we would have been invested in in data entry and processing uh, back in the day, <laughs> uh, that does not need to be done that way anymore. Um, and now we have a record of everything, um, you know, for years to come, uh, and and just a, a relatively straight, uh, streamlined process uh, of getting getting ratings processed and and finalized very quickly. And it should be said with respect to that ratings process, Ned, you know, the, the, we, we, we have over time, you know, as Kerms kind of alluded to, made the process more sophisticated, which was necessary as the league got bigger, even though, so the technical sophistication has made the workload lighter, but we also have had with five divisions and 300 some players every season, uh, have out of necessity needed to really figure out how to best manage the divisions and where the skill thresholds are and how to rate people. And so there's been an ever ongoing process to Im improve that. And when you when you join and sign up, there's a rubric that you that we ask you to check out to see where you think you should be trying out, like what division you should try for. Um, and, 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 and then when you actually show up, there's that with that rubric is utilized to, to evaluate you on your skills. Makes sense. And then I, I, I think you kind of alluded to it already, but you guys use, you mainly use like Google sheets to keep track of like scores and, and ratings and things like that. Cause that, you know, whenever we were running our league, that was one of the things that kind of stood out to me in terms of we need to get more efficient about, cause I was, you know, people keep like paper, paper sheets whenever they're playing in terms of scores. So I would have them go to a Google sheet and try to type in their scores, but then I'm reaching out to them because people forget 
right? So <laughs> right. <laughs> just kind of curious how you guys handle or how, you know, how SCBL handles the keeping track of scores and ratings. Is it like Google Sheets mainly? So I'll let Kramer speak to the rating side and then I can speak to the score side. Uh, so as far as the ratings go, yeah, that's all maintained in Google Sheets. Um, once once all the ratings are processed and finalized, um, the, the the whole system is tied to the registration. Um, so when somebody registers, if their name is already in the ratings database, we know what their rating is and we can populate it. Um, and if they decide they want to challenge their rating for a higher division, uh, we can process that and um, really organize our entire the entire logistics of our our ratings process uh, on the days where where we we have the rating sessions at the beginning of, of each season um, as far as the um, the scorekeeping um, we have paper sheets uh, at each court uh, that that you know it, it's never clear well i mean it's it's clear from our schedule but it's 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 not each court is not a uh, necessarily a consistent division from hour to hour through the through the the afternoon or evening. Um, so we have a, just one sheet with all the matches and teams labeled on it already, and the scores are recorded there. Uh, we collect those at the end of the night and we input them into a website uh, where where the the season scores are maintained and uh, accessible to all the players, uh, so people can. Where they where they where they are uh, in the standings each season, and so that's actually on our website. That's a script that um, uh, another member, uh, another former board member, had worked on. So once you're placed on a team, the implication, by the way, is our website manages teams and scores. So we make the teams as a board, and then um, and then the, the teams and players on those teams are input into the system, and then the scores are entered roughly every week meaning some, sometimes we have a week where we fall behind but um the 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 score sheets basically somebody takes a photo of them emails them to the full board and then we have a couple of board members who have agreed to take on that responsibility as part of their ongoing board role okay so it sounds like my my mistake then when in running the league that we did is is trying to get individuals to update a google sheet versus sounds like SCBL just collects the the data and then you know uploads it. Yeah, and, and there are two reasons for that. I think one of them is you know really the reliability, smart. and the other and the other part of it is I suppose is also a reliability thing, but a veracity. <laughs> you know, wanting to make sure that it's done accurately, and also since we photo every week and mail it to the full board, if there ends up being an error, oh, we discover that there was a score entry error in week four, we can go back and find the score sheet and make that correction. Another thing that's interesting about the score sheets too is that when a team is maybe short a player and they need to pick up a sub, we have rules that govern um, what, what kind of sub you're allowed to pick up. So the sub that you pick up cannot exceed the skill level of the missing person. Um, and, a lot and, of that because we want, we, we, when we build the teams, we want to ensure that, that you know, teams are balanced and so it would not be fair for a team to pick up somebody who's exceptionally better than the person who's missing um, and then dominate, uh, you know, when we went to such lengths to, to ensure that the, the teams were balanced at the beginning. Totally. That makes sense. How do, how do you communicate at scale? 
seeing as you have 325 participants, have you found, have you found that email, text, Facebook, what's, what's the recipe for a, a organization that communicates really well? Short answer yeah, is above. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we very rarely use text message, but but our primary means are Facebook and email, and we have to use both, and that's because there are some people who, I suppose we could just use email, but it's not always great for timely communications, but we do have members who are not on Facebook, and so basically every communication that goes out gets posted to our Facebook group, gets duplicated to the sub-marketplace, and gets sent out by via email. And it's a lot in terms of like hitting people potentially on three channels at once. But we have found that that is the only way to make sure that our members get the message. And very rarely do we have something that's like super timely, although there have been incidents where like uh, we were playing uh, last winter and the, um, and the power went out, you know, or, or two winters ago. And the power went out at the facility and we had to tell everybody if, you know, basically the rest of the night's canceled. So if you're not here for your game, yet don't bother coming in so Facebook is way better for the timely stuff um, but those are the channels that we have we have relied upon and we have a dedicated communications committee um, made up of a number of people because probably the com communications aspect of the league I'm not saying that it is the hardest job there there are many difficult things about what, about what we do but the communications aspect is one thing that is constantly like ongoing although it hasn't been um, so much because we're not running a season currently, but it's ongoing and it has to be done well. And, done, and, and that means both in terms of consistency, but also we have to communicate clearly. So it's a, it's a big lift. Totally. Yeah. With, with 325 people, it, it, it needs to, it needs to be down to a science. So it sounds like you guys have that, have that down, which is cool. So yeah, I want to go back to something that we talked about originally, but yeah, most, I think most people in terms of nonprofits are familiar with 501c3s, right? So what, what is a 501c7? It is a social organization that makes us different from, um, it makes us different from a uh, five, so, so the most common organization people are familiar with is a nonprofit and those nonprofits generally operate and I'm, and I'm doing really bad. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a, a tax attorney, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not any kind of attorney. Um, but the, uh, the classification of the organization as such is um, different in that it is a social organization, which means we exist for a social purpose. So that has implications, for example, with respect to how we use our money and how we run our programming and, and who our events are open to or not. Um, and, and of course, the formalization of the organization under uh, as a 501 um, entity does have some liability things related to it as well, meaning it's not like there's one person or one group of people who are independently taking on those liabilities. Um, and that comes with bylaws. So we have, we have bylaws that we have to follow, we have to file taxes, um, but it does basically exist primarily as a social organization. And our social organization is basically organized around uh, um, our mission of giving LGBTQIA plus people along with allies an opportunity to play, um, learn and grow 
in recreational and competitive volleyball. And, and we do that without respect to, you know, their, it's, it's oriented at adults and it's without respect to uh, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, expression, age, livelihood, race, culture, religion, ethnicity, et cetera. And also without re regard for your volleyball skill or experience. So we really wanna make it a, a space for everybody. And, and a secondary aspect of that is trying to provide a positive LGBTQIA plus image in the community through good sportsmanship. So we really ask our members to remember that they're part of our organization out in the world. Um, and some of that happens through our ally pledge and, and code of conduct related stuff, although the code of conduct, conduct is really focused on what happens while you're at SCVL sponsored play and activities. But um, you know, in our bylaws, part of that purpose is also how we portray the image in the community, greater community. What, what can people do you know, whether it's just an individual volleyball player or it's a coach or it's somebody, you know, running a company or leagues, what can, you know, anybody in the volleyball community that's listening to this, what can we do to be more inclusive to the LGBTQIA plus community? I mean, there, there, so, so I will, let me try to answer that from an, as a kind of official board member position first and say that if you go to our website and you check out our official documents, one of the things that we have in our documents is the Ally Pledge. And that Ally Pledge, in addition to we have a code of conduct that's related to kind of sportsmanship and how you conduct yourself within the league when you're playing, but we have an Ally Pledge that is actually getting at that very question. So, you know, in an effort to make the league a safe space for everybody, we have a couple of bullets that we articulate that we want people to follow. So one of them, for example, is not using anti-LGBTQIA um, language or slurs, nor language demeaning to any persons. So we, we say, yeah, our league is about, and again, I'm gonna use queer shorthand, like queer um, people and making a safe space for that, but also like you cannot demean any people as part of your ally pledge. And to even intervene in situations where maybe people are being bullied, harassed, or discriminated against, um, or witnessing language is being used against others on the basis of their identity. Sort of that list that I rattled off earlier, like orientation, gender, gender expression, age, livelihood, culture, race, et cetera, uh, religion, ethnicity. Um, to not judge people by those things, to try to build a safe environment around those, uh, around oneself, and to stand with others when laws discriminate against them, denying them their human equal human rights. And then the other part of that is to make um, supporting to support efforts to make the league and other spaces safe for all people. So that's a pretty big list. And the re reality is like, we can't exactly enforce whether or not somebody is doing that outside of the league, but we're trying to put the onus on people to recognize their agency, you know, and also recognize, we say, um, you know, when, uh, with respect to intervention, to intervene only if you safely can, to, to recognize that all of our members don't have the same agency and there may be times where intervening or stepping in or stepping up or, or being visible could actually endanger you. And we're not asking you to do that, um, but where you have agency to exercise it. The second thing that I would say, Ned, which is less the sort of official league position, but more about, um, about the, the idea of allyship is that um, without getting into a whole like separate podcast episode just on allyship, there, there's a lot of conversation about whether one can quote unquote be an ally or is an ally. And 
Um, I'm not going to say that the, the semantic distinction of acting like an ally or trying to be an ally versus actually being an ally, that that's not, worth, uh, that's not a worthy conversation it is. But I think the important thing to recognize is that allyship is an ongoing thing. And we don't like arrive at being an ally and we're done. So the kinds of things that I just named, especially thinking about the, the agency that we have as individuals um, and the opportunity that we have to use that agency to help make spaces safe for others and make sure others are not discriminated against um, or alienated or bullied or harassed is really important. And that I think is the biggest thing that anyone can do with respect to um, being an ally or trying to um, live with allyship as part of their way of being. So the, the ally concept, that's not unique to SEVL, right? Like that, that's no, not, not something a, that you came up with. No, many, many, okay. many, uh, many organizations do that. Um, many, I think the concept of allyship, I don't, I will say, I don't know its full history, but the idea is, I mean, we did not, we did not invent the idea of allyship. And I think even when we wrote the ally pledge, we did the the members of us those those are the board members who worked on it did a lot of research into what else was out there um and we looked at some major organizations for example like the human rights human rights campaign or maybe the naacp or the aclu for example as some source for that information and looked at smaller community organizations so kind of looked across the board for places where we knew they had a position of encouraging people to do that kind of thing to come up with our own language right so it's it sounds like it, it starts by you know reading and, and signing a pledge right but how do you, how do you communicate and reinforce that you know outside of if you know i'm sure somebody in the league you know just reads the form and you know maybe doesn't think much else about about that or um you know maybe that's a, a scenario that happens but how do you you know how do you get through to people communicate reinforce that that concept one of the things that's interesting that, that we've done a little more since we, since we had to suspend the league is that we've had a couple or have made a couple of opportunities to help educate our members. And by the way, we have, you know, 300 some active members any season, but we have, I don't even know how many, um, you know, members of our Facebook pages. Uh, and we have, I think over a thousand people on our email list. So one of the things that we've done is periodically send out um, things that aren't necessarily related to volleyball. So we actually talked about, uh, I think we, we, we talked about Juneteenth a little bit because we felt like it was appropriate for us to address issues of black history because we have black members. Or um, we talked about Stonewall and recognized that some of the key figures in Stonewall were, um, were uh, Black and Indigenous people of color. I don't know if you know the, the acronym BIPOC, but BIPOC, uh, Black and Indigenous people of color who were who were um, drag queens or, or maybe potentially of trans identity, and so to highlight members of 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 the the history sort of people from history who have been important and sort of lift them up to say, you know. It, um, those people did great things and came before so that we can have what we have today. Now that doesn't necessarily apply the same way to say maybe let's just say like a uh, 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 member who doesn't identify as LGBTQIA who joins our league, but is comfortable with it, but has never really thought about their own personal uh, responsibility to make a safe space for others. 
you know, we can't hold people responsible for it, but I think there is a kind of accountability thing that happens when you find yourself surrounded by and becoming friends with others who are not like you and being able to think about and understand those people. So I, I don't know that I have a great answer to like particular ways that we do that. Now I will say that within the league, we do expect people, especially with code of conduct, um, to behave a certain way. And we have a sanctions policy that we have used in cases where an individual has maybe acted in ways that are not appropriate and in line with the spirit of our league. So there are some formal ways that we've dealt with things like that. Um, fortunately, that's not something that happens very often. <laughs> uh, it's been, uh, we can count on one hand, I think the number of times in, in my involvement with the organization where we've had to do anything like that, but, but it is something that, um, it is something that we've put in place to help kind of ensure, at least within the context of, of the, the league's activities, that there is a standard that is maintained. So an organization like Pittsburgh Grass Volleyball, the, the group that I run, would I be able to essentially borrow your, you know, the verbiage you, you know, SCVL uses for their ally pledge? Or should I just try to come up with something more, you know, more specific, more personal to, to our organization? I mean, I guess my, my opinion would be, you know, we're a nonprofit organization. And even though we did write our own thing, we sourced from other people. And I, I would say, yeah, to help yourself to it. Obviously, there are things in there that are particular to our organization. But, but the idea of to not speak against people up on the basis of their identity and to try to, try to be present for people with less agency, I'm, a shorthand for the kind of bullet points that are in our pledge, um, would certainly be something that I think any organization could utilize. Um, and, and I have actually referred to our pledge as precedent in other contexts within other organizations as the kind of thing that I think an organization to, can do to like as a first step in sort of making things a safe space. You know, like putting it into words and making people encounter it is, is a way to make that happen. Cool, yeah, and that, you know, that's, that's the reason for my, my question, so. Yeah, I no, I, I appreciate it. I just, you know, I'm kind of looking for a starting, a starting point, right? So, you know, if I can kind of use, you know, some of the, the verbiage that you all use, I think that would, that would be good, at least for our organization and maybe, you know, anybody else, other organizations listening to, so. Yeah, and I, I, Kramer, I, I'm, I want to ask you, you, before moving to Pittsburgh, you played in, so I'm going to go meta and say, Steel City is not officially affiliated with, but has many members who play in tournaments run by NAGVA, uh, which is a national organization. And Kramer, maybe you can talk about NAGVA and your experience with other leagues, you know, and, and not to discredit what other leagues are doing because all, all these leagues that kind of have members do things their own way. But maybe you can say a little bit about things you've found that are different about our organization. Yeah, so Steel, the Steel City League um, is part of a broader um, uh, LGBTQIA-friendly uh, volleyball organization called NAGVA, the North American Gay Volleyball Association, uh, which uh, individual cities, uh, leagues sponsor, or maybe not even leagues, but uh, people in individual cities sponsor tournaments uh, as part of the NAGVA organization. Uh, that are sanctioned 
tournaments, uh, two day, typically two-day tournaments over a weekend. Um, one day is pool play, one day is the playoff uh, tournament play. Um, and it's usually uh, uh, the situation where they bring in, uh, bring in official USA volleyball referees on uh, for the tournament play. So it's, 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 a, it's a pretty big deal. Um, but it's uh, our league is is um, part of that organization, in, in, in as much as we, we sponsor a tournament uh, every year uh, to bring that the community uh, to our city to play. Um, and what what specifically would you like me to elaborate on, Andrew? Well, I was thinking you you've played in leagues in other cities before you moved to Pittsburgh. Is that correct? I have not. Well, you have not. not. Okay, so <laughs> not something this formal. I played in like park and rec leagues um, in Texas and and um, at a gym league in Virginia, but but nothing nothing to the point of uh, to the level of what we have here. Um, and I did not, in fact, join Nagva until um, until I was introduced to it through through our league. <laughs> I guess what what I would say, Ned, is that my understanding, and I and I and I cannot say this with absolute knowledge, but my understanding is that no other league kind of does all the things we do in terms of the ratings process and making teams. We have some things that are formalized in our process that help you get to know one another. So, like some of the members of our league have played in, for example, the Gotham League, which is which is the um, the big Nagba kind of relate, if you want to say Nagba related. Um, uh, Gay Volleyball League in New York City. And they have a ton of divisions, but you make a team for the most part and, and, and come with that team. Or I went back to Chicago for work in, in 2016 and played uh, in a sand league that was organized by um, one of the organizations that, that kind of has a, an informal relationship with NAGVA. And I was able to get placed on a team as, kind of, as a kind of free agent, but the rest of the team came preformed. So uh, I think that we are unusual in our process, and, I, and, and one of the things that we got to earlier is that through our formal process with the board making leagues, you do meet new people every season. And especially over time, if you stay with the league, you're playing against people that you know and are friends with. So it's not this sort of like <laughs> uh, adversary across the net that you don't know. These are people that you have relationships with, maybe even some of your best friends. So it does, I think, change the dynamic of play. And there are still people who uh, maybe like jab at one another in a playful way, um, you know, uh, tease one another in, in, in a friendly manner. And there can be like some friendly competitive talk. But we, but we also think that that helps to reduce the incidence of people trash talking one another or, or, you know, being aggressive toward the opposing team. Because you know those people, you're friends with them, and there's an accountability that comes with that. Um, so I think it's an interesting difference about our organization. And that's not to discredit what the, what the other organizations in other cities are doing. It just is something that is, from everything I've heard, unique about our particular league. And, and I, I, I will second that. There, I have not encountered another gay volleyball league that uh, puts in the amount of work that our board does to prepare the teams uh, each season so that uh, everybody is meeting new people each season that that is directly in support of our mission that's not to say other organizations don't have uh community focused um activities right. but 
this is something that's very unique to the Steel City Volleyball League is, is the board's effort in creating the teams each season. And, and related to that, the sanction, we have a sanctions policy that I referred to earlier. That's a recent development. So there was always a, a code of conduct. The ally pledge was added um, around the time I joined the board. I don't remember exactly what year, but I think um, there, around the same time we revisited the vision and mission and kind of the purpose of the organization, the ally pledge was developed. And then the sanctions policy came around maybe a year later because we realized that it's great to say that we have a code of conduct and it's great to say that we have an ally pledge, but we need to be able to try to enforce those things and without some teeth behind it, we don't have a way to address those things when maybe they're violated or they're not, um, they're not uh, followed or people are not kind of exercising within the spirit of them. And I will say, we've actually had good success with that too. We had a new member join a couple of years ago, I'm not gonna name that member, but they came in and were a little bit hot on the court. They, they were competitive in a way that kind of crossed beyond friendly. And we had a conversation with that person and um, they turned around immediately and have and then turned into a really good mentor. So they it, it was I don't want to say a 180, but this is somebody who heard what we were trying to do, realized their kind of their their the opportunity they have to contribute to the organization and pivoted and has and and became a, a, a valuable part of the league beyond just like showing up and playing every week. So, so sometimes it just takes taking a person aside and, and having a conversation. That, that's one of the ways that you reinforce, it sounds like, the, the pledge. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think peer, peer-to-peer uh, accountability is an important part of that, too, that, that somebody just saying, hey, this is not okay, um, can often affect a change in somebody uh, where, where it doesn't have to come from a, an official sanctions policy. Um, I, yep. I think it's important to have that policy there, but that's not the first line of defense. Um, when, when, when somebody sees something going on, they need to feel empowered to, to and, and, uh, and, and safe in, do, in doing so to, to say something uh, to the person and, and say, this is not going to work. We've got we've to fix this. Yeah. Yeah. And that, 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 you know, that was the reason for the question because, I certainly want to adopt some sort of ally pledge going forward. And, and I don't want, I want it to be more than just people signing a piece of paper. Right. So that was kind of, you know, how I was thinking about that. Right. How do you actually enforce, communicate that? And yeah, it sounds like it sometimes take, it some takes, you know, talking to, to individuals that, you know, maybe need a little bit more guidance than others. And it does put something on the culture of the organization too, meaning the members have to uphold as much, just as much as we do. You know, if the board is committed to this, but the membership is not, then it's going to be practically unenforceable. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about, about this kind of thing is that, you know, our members kind of come to see the league as something that they want to protect and maintain and, and take ownership of. So even if they're not involved in the board, you know, we see that happen in the form of mentorship. So when people mentor down a division or even, or even within a team where they're playing at the same level as, as others that they're with, kind of being representatives of and helping kind of set standards for, this is how we do this here. Uh, this is a place that's meant to be inclusive and fun and safe and competitive if that's the level of play you wanna play at. Meaning um, like, you know, you can kind of take it 
from a skill level as far as you want, but underneath all of that is this idea that this is a community and that that, that aspect is every bit as critical, if not, if not even more important than the, the, the game itself. How, how much do you think the type of organization SCVL is, plays a factor in, in overall success and, and how the, the company and how the company culture functions? And, and I guess the reason I asked that, just for example, Andrew, if, if you were maybe running this as a for-profit entity with Matthew as your, you know, as, you know, basically same role, president and vice president. Do you think doing something for profit versus nonprofit, do you think that, is that a big, you know, does that make a difference? I guess is what I'm looking, kind of what I'm asking. I mean, I, I can speak from my own thoughts that, you know, I want to, I, I don't know that I would be in this role if this were not, uh, if I were not approaching this as as this, I want it. I want this to be a volleyball league that I want to play in, you know. And 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 that may be contrary to maybe a for-profit business perspective, um, you know. My uh, but I'm, I I approach the decisions that I make here um, or proposals that I I pursue from from that perspective. Like is is what I'm trying to implement making this a league or maintaining this as a league that I would want to play in and and get out of it what I what I seek in in this league um, and if the answer is no then then the decision is pretty clear <laughs> um, you know whether whether I, I guess the nonprofit aspect of it takes the 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 decision of having to weigh financial versus versus satisfaction uh, out, out, off the table. Um, but I don't know that I would want to be in that position. Um, so I, so I, I, I don't know if that's really answering the question so much as saying, <laughs> uh, reject the hypothetical. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but, but I think to try to answer some of that question, you know, I'm thinking about since I had not played volleyball before joining Steel City, um, I'm thinking about when I lived in Chicago, I actually did go, I was a membership, uh, I had a membership at a gym and I showed up one night for pickup, which was advertised as sort of all skill. And I was quickly shut out. <laughs> like I realized within maybe half of the first set, also not knowing that it was called a set at the time, <laughs> but within half of the first set, I realized that I wasn't really welcome there, that the skill level is higher than that. And that, and that even though the gym had said it was supposed to be for all skills, it really wasn't. And that I was messing things up and people were upset with me. So I left. Um, and uh, I can also think about um, tournaments I've showed up to where I've maybe, and I haven't played in any Niagara tournaments, but in some of the like regional tournaments where I show, showed up with a team or maybe even got picked up to play and feel a really uncertainty about whether or not it is a quote unquote safe space um, or whether or not even my skill level will be considered acceptable to people. And the pressure of that I think is definitely taken off, not 100% maybe because I was nervous when I tried out for Steel City, not knowing what it was like. But I think once people get to know the league, it takes a lot of pressure off. And um, I do think that it makes a difference in terms of 
help people come back for. And it will also say that I think it probably, which is related to Kramer's comment on whether or not we think about our decisions from a sort of business perspective or a community perspective, or maybe even quote unquote, what's right. Um, I do think that, that we have a lot of people self-select in or out based on what they see of the culture of the organization. So some people join and maybe they never come back because the culture was not a right fit for them. Um, but we have a lot of members who come and stay for a long time, which is, I think, the proof of that is in our growth. I mean, there were a couple of seasons in a row where we were growing, not quite exponentially, but it felt like it, where maybe our, our membership was almost doubling in a single season because the people who were there were happy and were staying and were telling others about it. Well, what, when did the, the More Than Volleyball video come out? Did that come out in like 2017? No, it was uploaded to YouTube in 2017. Okay. That was worked on before Kramer and I joined because I happened, to know, I happened to know somebody in that video from another context. And she, I remember her telling me about the league then. So it was being worked on in maybe 2000 five or 2006, maybe 2007. Um, mm -hmm. It only got uploaded to YouTube some number of years later because we didn't want to lose track of it. And we actually had a screening of that at one of our season launch parties, because not terribly long. And the board at the time thought that, that it, was a it was a relevant thing to do to show our new members and our, and our members who've been a part of the organization for a long time, kind of remind everybody about what this league is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was right around the time we did the the ally pledge and the the, yep. the reaffirmation of the mission. Yep. Yeah, for any, for anybody I guess that's listening that isn't doesn't know doesn't know what we're talking about. So SCVL put together a, a super nice video called "More Than Volleyball," just related to their organization. I, I I'm sure you guys could explain it better better than I can, but it's something that that you know I'll I'll post in in the near future on on our pages so people people can take a look but yes yeah, definitely oh I, I was just gonna i was just gonna double down on what you were saying i think yeah, the idea of the video was to kind of get a little bit of an oral history and help people understand what the organization was about i actually don't know the conditions under which people decided to make the video but i think somebody had an interest in kind of documenting what they thought was a really unique thing and um, it's great having it preserved in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's great. I watched it many, many times before this conversation. So, but what, what's the, what do you think the ceiling is in terms of you guys have talked about some of the like explosive growth that you've had at SCVL? Is, is there a specific number that you get to that you say you can't go above? You know, what, what, and, you know, parlay that into what, What's the vision for for SEVL going forward, and and that you know that could include mission statement too. You know whether that's if that's changing at all. But I mean, I'm laughing a little bit at the ceiling thing because around the time Kramer and I joined the board, or maybe shortly after I joined the board, there was a major discussion. It might have been 2017 when we were reviewed. Well, well, Kramer, what year did we move from Green Tree? We moved from Green Tree to Pit Elite Volleyball Association, or PIVA, um, a couple years in to 
but the time the, the, the our, our mutual membership meaning um maybe 2009 or 2010 i don't know i trust kramer more with that um yeah, yeah I've, all the years are running together now um, <laughs> what is time <laughs> but what, what, what but, i remember oh, is uh, we, were, we were we had 125 members when we left green tree um because we were growing to a point where we were not going to be able to run the league in a sustainable way with only three courts. Um, and we went to a place with five courts um, and very quickly filled that space. <laughs> yeah, I uh, wanna say that, that, we, that we maybe hit 180 that next season without trying to promote the organization. Yeah, we, in, in, in I think two years, we doubled our membership uh, and basically hit what was a reasonable capacity um, for a five-court facility. <laughs> um, so at that point, we had to uh, start considering how we could manage, uh, manage membership numbers without sacrificing the integrity of the league. Um, and so th we implemented things like a wait list that uh, based on the mathematics behind how many players one could conceivably have running the league for four to five hours on five courts with, uh, you know, 12 to 14 people per, per court, um, what is the maximum number of players that you could, you could enroll um, without having to restrict numbers? Um, and at so that point, we, and, and, and if I may, I'm, I'm just looking back, like that was in 2016 that we, we called it a lever pulling discussion. Right. Meaning what sort of factors did we have to change and how people were allowed to register, mentor, et cetera. So that was, that was four years ago that we had that discussion. Yeah, but that discussion started us along the lines of, of thinking about how, how should our mentoring program look? Um, you know, one of the levers that we, we considered was uh, uh, requiring that new players uh, can't play in a lower, uh, a second lower division for their first season, because that is in line with wanting to see that that this player is, is somebody that is capable of mentoring in an effective way and in a meaningful way, and not just trying to get more court time, uh, you know, which, which is not necessarily in line with our mission. Um, so that helped us control some of the numbers and, and allowed us to develop the mentoring program in a way that, that was meaningful to our mission. Yeah, and I think what's, what's implicit there um, is when I think we first joined the league, you could choose to play in one or two divisions and it didn't matter if you were mentoring or not. So the formalization of the mentorship program was an effort to both help kind of improve the quality of the experience for everybody, but also a way to help um, ma manage the scale of things. I do think it was really about quality first, sure. um, but, but a secondary effect of that was you can't just choose to play two divisions unless you're serious about taking on that responsibility. And that's one of the things I think that's great about the league is, is that this mentoring program can not only help educate and develop players in a lower division, but also allow players to bridge divisions in a way that they would not otherwise get to do. Uh, you know, we, we talked about clicks earlier. It's very easy to stay within your division and not 
socialize or interact with other divisions, but that's not really the, the, the community that we, we would like to promote. Um, and so mentoring enables players in one division to cross into a different division and play with players they might not otherwise get to play. Um, one, I, I can actually give a really great experience that I had doing this. Um, so I had shoulder surgery that prevented me from playing at the level that I used to play at. Um, and um, through my recovery, I, I actually got, uh, had myself downrated by a couple divisions so that I could play in lower divisions, not uh, physically hurt myself in the process of, of trying to get back into playing again. Uh, but I got to play with players that I never had the opportunity to play with before. Uh, and it was it was exciting for me. And, and I was able to, even though I couldn't play at, at the, the level I was playing at, I was able to, to bring what I knew about the game to help mentor players uh, in other, other divisions that I would not necessarily interact with. Um, and it was, it was a fantastic experience for me. Mm -hmm. And coming, coming back a little bit to your question about this, the scale and sort of the like maybe long-term vision for the organization, um, you know, we do, we do have a very real constraint that, that so far the only, the biggest volleyball facility we've been able to find that has room for us is five courts. And we moved from Piva, which is primarily an organization that serves um, girls club volleyball, like helping, helping young women develop their skills um, and play in club teams. Uh, we moved to Grit, which is our current home, for a number of reasons, one of which was also five courts, but um, they had, a t they had, because they didn't have, they didn't have a girls club program running as a primary reason to exist, they were able to prioritize our timing. So we were able to start a little bit earlier on Sundays. Um, our Sunday league at, at Piva was sometimes finishing at 10 or 11 at night which compared to what I've heard from some other recreational leagues, like my friends who play hockey is nothing, <laughs> but, but, you know, to get home from a volleyball match at like 1130 or midnight, and then to have to like, you know, bring yourself down and eat and get ready for bed and then be up and at work first thing Monday morning is not pleasant. So we were able to shift that earlier into the day. And, and we, we still have that limit of five courts. Now we could potentially expand to another hour if there were enough demand. Um, but for now, we are really content with the five-hour program um, because it seems to work for what we're doing. The, the, there's a second more complex thing to the, the capacity, which is I don't think in my lifetime we will get to this point. But, and, th and I'm not answering on behalf of the league when I say this, I would envision just as I would for any of the organizations that are kind of involved in doing advocacy work for people who have maybe been marginalized or have reduced agency, that the sort of ideal future would be one in which an organization like that isn't needed at all, right? Like that, that we don't need to have a league that caters to making safe spaces for LGBTQIA people because they're safe everywhere. But the reality is that probably won't be the case. So I think, you know, the mission of the organization when we updated it, um, I think it was initially stated as LGBTQ. We added the IA plus in in twenty. I think it was twenty seventeen when we did that work. You know, we we added that ally pledge at that time as a way to impart being an advocate for others and recognizing that that people with again the queer shorthand queer identities. Some of some people those some members of those communities 
have more agency in the world they, than they did when the organization was formed. So like as a white man who identifies as gay, um, I have, even though I don't have absolute agency in the world, I have a lot of agency. And to kind of impart on people like me, you can be an ally for others who don't have the same opportunities you have, right? So there is something about maybe that mission did evolve because we saw that there was an opportunity for it to evolve. We also recognized that there were more and more people who didn't share that LGBTQIA plus identity joining the league. And it was important for us to evolve the organization to say, you are welcome here. We would love to have you here as long as you're on board with what we're doing. And if you're on the same page as us, great. And even if you like need to come and learn a little bit about what that means, we can help with that because you'll you'll learn just by being around us. Um, and then even maybe shifting some more recently to doing some explicit education around some of those issues. So mm -hmm. I, I we haven't as a board revisited our vision and mission since um, because I don't think that the work that we're trying to do, the, the sort of target goal has been realized and I don't think it will be realized, but if situations change in such a way, we, we, we could, I could imagine the organization seeing itself needing to revisit things because we've always been willing to revisit and talk about things that we're doing in order to make them better, whether it's our ratings process or, or the number of divisions or, um, you know, what it means to, um, put yourself up to, 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 to try out for the like next level, um, you know, or how we help our members develop skills. All of those things have kind of been fair for consideration and the board, and I, and I, and I cannot speak to the board members before me. I, you know, the organization survived that long, so they had to be doing great work. But I will say the board members that we've had during my involvement have not been afraid to commit themselves to doing that work, asking those questions and kind of not assuming that the status quo is just working. And that, that I think is maybe the best, <laughs> the best I can answer that question. <laughs> mm -hmm. What, is there anything specific, I'm sure, I'm sure there is, about running, running SCVL over the last couple of years for you both that like, is there something you've learned that, that sticks out in terms of maybe running an organization or just human nature? Does anything kind of stick out in terms of? Kramer, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, any change, I, I, we've, I, think, I think Twig will probably agree with me here. Any change that we make um, has an impact on people. And mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, casual to say that, but, but, but uh, it's, it's, it's a true statement. And it's really important to communicate those changes in an effective way. Um, and it's very important to communicate anything about the league really in an effective way, considering what, what uh, you know, that, that it's having an impact on people. Um, since I'm so involved in ratings, that's a great example of, of how this needs to happen. Um, you know, when, if somebody tries out for a division that they want to play in and their ratings do not qualify them for that division, it's a very delicate situation to, to have to break bad news to somebody who may think they belong in a division that they didn't rate into. Um, and, you know, 
one, one way to approach it is just to say, here's your rating, you know, you're out of luck. And that's not how we approach it. We have uh, a communications committee uh, who delivers this news to each person individually, offers some, some support uh, to help them understand uh, the results, uh, hopefully in a way that, that uh, makes them feel better about the process, even if it's disappointing to them. Um, it at least shows them that we, 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 we're, this is not a, a random result. This is, this is a lot of work went into these results and, and um, you know, translating that into, into something that uh, people who might have an emotional reaction to bad news uh, can, can process in a good way, I think is, is really important. And that's one of the things that we've learned over the years that, that the rating system is not perfect, but how you deliver bad news to people is very important uh, in the process and making it successful. Yeah, the communication thing is really is really critical. I will say, so, you know, I, I alluded earlier to being involved in a number of other organizations. One of the one of the one of the biggest ones is AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. So I'm I'm a design educator now, but also have a background as a as a practicing designer, kind of doing like I started in web design, et cetera. But digression aside, I served on the Pittsburgh chapter board and was president, vice president and president for some time. And then I served in a position that was, it's called um, uh, President's Council Chair, where you're kind of like the president of all the chapter presidents. And then I eventually joined the National Board as Treasurer. And these are all volunteer positions. And, um, you know, running Steel City has been, and I don't say this in a bad way, but has required the same sort of um, seriousness in our approach and careful consideration of issues and, um, you know, careful work and putting it, putting in the effort. And uh, I, I have enjoyed my work in both organizations, but I think one of the things I've really enjoyed so much about, um, about Steel City in particular is that the kind of fruits of the effort that the board put in are so evident to us. Not that it's been, not that everything we do has been easy, you know, there have been there have been some challenging times within our organization. And there's kind of been a joke on the board that like, as you know, it, it's part of my presidency that we kind of have major issue after major issue to deal with, including, you know, a global pandemic. Um, I, uh, I will say that I think recognizing the importance of, of how we work together as a board and how that collaboration kind of extends into the organization is really critical. And, and, to, and to put another like angle on this, I'm also working on my PhD right now in something called transition design, which I'll paraphrase as being about large scale complex social systems and designing for those things. And I, my, my research focus is on collaboration and care. And I think that research focus stems partly from my experience with the league meaning I saw things happening within the league that I thought, huh, this is really interesting. I wanna make my life's work about this. Um, now it, it presented in other contexts, like in my involvement with AIGA, in my work as a professor, like it's there too in most of the settings that I've been involved in. But I think there's something about seeing how things can work well and seeing what good collaboration looks like and the care that's present in that and how that care actually makes an impact and a difference to people, especially when we're dealing with a community of people who may have been marginalized, othered, harassed, discriminated against, et cetera, 
to be able to put work into something like that and see that come to fruition in a way that benefits others, I think is really important. So for me, that's kind of my big takeaway. Yeah, it's, it's satisfying to to put in a, a a great great effort and to see the the, the fruits of that effort um, implemented and and pay off. Um, so to have such a committed board that we like we have uh, who are not afraid to put in that work and who are also committed to the 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 experience of the league uh, is 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 a very satisfying. Uh, experience for me I can I can double down on that and, mm -hmm. and and I would also add you know like the current situation you know with needing to really modify what we've been doing as an organization and not being able to run the league because of COVID-19 we on our board everybody is on the same page with wanting to do what's in the best interest of the organization and its members we are not always 100% on the same page about what it will take to do that or what's right to make that happen. But what's so fantastic about the organization and the league is that we come together, we have the serious discussions as a board, we make a decision, we come to an agreement to proceed, we reach consensus or find a way forward, and then we get support from our members. Not that, not that people don't want to be playing volleyball right now, but uh, we we have found that even in what I would say is a very challenging time for an organization that runs recreational sports, have found our community to be really on board with what we're doing, uh, and that is that is powerful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like like I said before, you got you, SCVL is seriously running a masterclass on on league best practices, and. I, I am certainly planning to to borrow some of what you all do and you know and, and parlay that into into what we do going forward. So yeah, you're you're you know you're making an impact not only on on the LGBT uh, QIA plus community but you know the volleyball community I think in general. So we're trying. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to, to to get involved whenever we're all back to normal here. Whenever that's going to be. <laughs> yeah, and I I will say, I mean, by the time this by the time this episode comes out, how how quickly do you release an episode after you record it, Ned? That that it really just depends. I normally so I'll normally have the conversation, and then I have to do like a little intro, right? So I'll do a little intro about um, you guys, of course, and, and SCVL as an organization. And then I'll edit that, put it all together and then, and then put it out. So it'll, it'll probably take a week. It, it well, so, so what I was going to say is within the very near future, we're gonna be making an announcement about what our plans are for the spring. Um, you know, we, we've been having to face that decision as we reach the end, as we're kind of midway through what would be the fall season. So um, we'll have announcements soon. Um, and we can't say anything more about that now, of course. But like, like you, I think everybody is eager to get back on the court. That I think that's an understatement. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. For sure. So yeah, outside of that, Matthew, I did have a, a question for you specifically in the in the role that you're in. Sure. Fun one, but what what makes 
if you can dumb this down for for me, what what makes weather prediction so difficult? (laughs) (laughs) How many podcast episodes do you have? (laughs) So there's a um, there's a, a an a result from a 1993, I think, publication that, that said that a weather forecast has no value until somebody needs to use it. Um, so I want, I want to start answering your question there. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. If You can make a weather forecast all you want, but if nobody is actually making a decision based upon it, it's, it has no value inherently. Um, it, nobody really cares um, it, about the forecast unless they actually have to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there is a whole science side of that question. There's a whole communication side of that question. Um, and I think the biggest obstacle that we as weather forecasters face is in the communication side. How is the user of the weather forecast receiving it, interpreting it, um, understanding it um, and being able to take science and turn it into something accessible to a non-scientist or a non-meteorologist is a big challenge, especially for somebody who's brought up in a science-based uh, academic background. <laughs> um, it's just, it's not easy to take complex scientific processes and turn them into something that, that someone who did not study them can understand. Um, so, I mean, there is, there is a whole complicated side of, on the science bit about, you know, taking these complex fluid dynamic processes and understanding what they mean for the weather. Um, but I think the hardest part is really in the actual communication of it. Um, you know, I can tell you the, that, you know, it's going to snow three inches tomorrow, but what, what does that mean? What is the uncertainty in what I'm saying there? What is the actual range of possibilities? You as a user need to know that stuff in order to make the most informed decision uh, that you can make. And it's, it's not going to snow three inches tomorrow, <laughs> but um, just as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example. Um, you know, I, it doesn't, I can tell you it's gonna be 75 degrees on Wednesday. Does that mean anything to you? Well, mm-hmm. if I can jump into, I mean, Kramer, we've had this conversation before, but I think one of the things that you've told me is commonly misunderstood is, Answer, for example, right? if, yeah, if it says 47% chance of showers, what does that mean? Yeah, so, so let's, let's talk about that. So I hear all the time, you know, you, 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 you know what I'm going to say. Well, whether people can, you know, t- say there's a 50% chance of rain, they're wrong half the time, um, you know, and they still have their job. So Every time I hear that statement, I push back and I say, okay, what is, if I tell you there's a 30% chance of rain and it rains, is that a bad forecast? And what would you say to that? We're taking that rhetorically, Matthew. Oh, oh, (laughs) Oh, you're asking me? I'm sorry. I'm not giving that, delivering that rhetorically. Like if I I tell you there's a 30% chance of rain, and it rains, do you feel like that's a bad forecast? Um, yes, I, well, it's tough. I could see both Why? sides. 
why, 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 why yes and why no? Well, I guess the one side would say it rained. Why isn't that number higher? <laughs> okay. Um, so then my question to you is what does a 30% chance of rain mean to you? Hmm. You didn't and, know you were going to get grilled and asking a question, Ned, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I can eloquently answer that. Yeah, the fact that you don't know the answer right away means you don't understand the weather information that I'm providing to you, which yeah. means I'm not doing my job effectively. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting, too, because I, I come at things, granted visual communication, but but my my whole career has, up until this point, been largely about communication. Um, yeah. And and I think about a, a fact, a, a, a expressing a, a piece of information like 30% chance of rain and what that means in terms of the forecast and having a better understanding now that I know Matthew and actually another member of our league who is also a meteorologist, Chad Kaufman. Um, you know, we, it, I, I've been able to talk to both of them a little, about, a little bit about meteorology and it's so interesting how, what those numbers actually mean when you like get under the hood. <laughs> Yeah, like the, the the way that we identify whether that that chance of rain forecast is good or bad is by looking back at all the times that we forecasted a 30% chance of rain. And of mm. all of those times that we forecasted a 30% chance of rain, how many times should it have rained? 30%. Mm -hmm. If we forecast 30% and it rains 30% of the time that we do that, then that's a good forecast. If it rains 60% of the time that we forecast a 30% chance of rain, you know what? That means we're not <laughs> forecasting high enough of a chance of rain. Um, so that's, that's... That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it is. And, so and basically, every time you look at your phone, it says 30% chance. Out of 10 times you're looking at your... Well, over 10 days or out of 10 times, you're, it, you know, if it says 30%, you're really only expecting it to be correct three out of 10 times. Right, and one other, th well, well, it's not, it's not incorrect. It, there's a 70% chance it's not gonna rain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so it's, not a, a, it's not a right, wrong kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a, it's a um, kind of binning of, of forecasts in order to say, is this in the right bin? Uh, is this forecast that we made in the right bin? And um, is our performance following suit? Um, you know, weather is not binary. There are, there's, it's a, it's a whole probability space. Um, you know, and, and we, we, as weather forecasters really are doing ourselves a disservice and uh, to the public by trying to give you a, what we call a deterministic forecast. It's, this is the forecast rather than mm -hmm. this is the spectrum of possibilities that could happen. Most of which are clustered around this possible outcome, but there are other possibilities. Um, one of the things that we've started doing recently is um, is with snow forecasting. Um, rather than just saying there's a you know four to six inches of snow, we are looking at a a whole spectrum of model forecasts with particular outcomes and clustering those into groups of, of okay, 60% of these models are showing a forecast of 12 inches of snow. Um, two of those forecasts are showing 25 inches of snow. Six of them are showing two inches of snow and 
half of them are showing no rain at all or, or all rain um, and no snow at all. So now we as weather forecasters, rather than just picking one outcome, we can say, look, there are two possibilities here. One is it snows a foot. The other is warm air comes in and turns it all to rain. They're both high probability likelihood. We don't know which of those solutions yet is going to be the outcome. It may be that we don't know that until 12 hours ahead of time. And sometimes that's correct. Has and, your yeah. professional background, has that ever assisted the SCVL group in terms of planning or a big weather event happening? Um, <laughs> Andrew laughing. I, I'm the informal consultant for our, uh, our <laughs> for outdoor play. I, I could imagine <laughs> that. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm often asked whether it's, it's safe to go out and play in the park over the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's another thing though that I would bring up. Um, uh, we didn't talk about this, but the logistics of actually building a schedule with five divisions and a variable number of teams season to season is actually quite complex, way more complex than than one would think. And I will say that um, you know we we have actually hired a consultant to build us a scheduling tool that takes us ninety percent or maybe ninety eight percent of the way there. But Kramer's very and some of this maybe is directly related to his work and some of this is just who he is he, he has been invaluable in helping get us like that extra like that last mile if you will um like it mm -hmm. is to the finish on those things and it is it is hard work and some of that is related to some coding stuff that he coding skills he's developed in uh, in his career and and maybe even some he had before he started his career and some of that is um related to i think him having a really like solid head on his shoulders for logic and working out complex things. Um, so I, I just have to, you know, give, give testament to, to him as a, as a board member and how invaluable he is in, in a lot of the things we do that have complex underlying logic structures. So the rating system, or, uh, he and I work closely on a registration process. Like all of these things actually have quite a lot underneath and he's been critical to that. I'm a numbered nerd. That's that's <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that's not the only kind of nerd he is. But we'll yeah. start with numbers. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, but I, I I talked about you know people skills earlier, and that's not my strength. My strength is numbers. <laughs> so I, I'm I count on people who have more people skills to be able to handle the the people side of of the organization, <laughs> and sure. and I, I I put in. The, the the talents that I might have where where I have them um, and where they're needed. The funny thing about that too is I think that that he and I complement each other really well in that respect. You know, I generally my soft skills I think are generally pretty good. Um, but there have been times where we've had an issue, for example, with a particular member, and I ha maybe have reached my capacity, and I can turn to Kramer and say, "You have to take this from here, because I've reached the limits of what I can manage." without mm -hmm. getting super affected, <laughs> mm -hmm. meaning angry, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't happen a lot, but, you know, we balance each other out really well. And that's true of, of all the board members and the way that we play off of everyone's mutual skills. Yeah. And it makes sense. Any, any good leadership team, like you don't want everybody with the same skills around you, right? You, you know, you want, want I'm sorry, Matthew. Yep. You want diversity. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right. Yep. That makes sense. So yeah, I know we're we're coming up against 
the time here in terms of, I think we, we said two hours. So I'm not sure if there's anything else, Andrew, Matthew, that you want to talk about in terms of SCVL, things that we didn't talk about. We can certainly, you know, do this again at some point in the near future. I mean, do we, do we want to talk at all about, um, uh, the refing side of things. Um, that's another aspect of our league that I think is, is something that a lot of, uh, uh, not all leagues. Um, yeah, I, do. I, I don't know it, if we want to go into that or not. I think it would be good to touch on it briefly. And, and it should be said too, that, that what, something that Kramer does, Kramer, can you talk about your, your certification or certifications as a referee? Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm a USA volleyball certified ref. Um, but this was something that I started doing back in Amarillo, Texas, when I uh, lived there and worked there and uh, played in the league there. Um, I, I got certified to play to ref uh, in in the Park and Rec League, um, and and when I came to Pittsburgh and joined Steel City, I, I realized you know I I enjoy volleyball, I enjoy refing volleyball. Why not uh, Why not formalize it and get paid for it too? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I went and got a USA Volleyball certification. Um, and one of the things that uh, I, I value in our league is, is that we um, have members engaged in refing of their, their matches. Um, and I know not everybody in the league likes that at all, or some, some maybe outwardly dislike it. Um, but it, it, my experience with refing has been that it helps you develop your game um and like by watching other people play volleyball seeing it from a different perspective not down on the court itself you really come to appreciate nuances of the game that you don't get to see when you're down in in the weeds um so so uh, yeah that's my background with mm -hmm. with um and and I, I I have grown considerably as a result of of that um, on on both playing and and understanding of the game and people uh, sides of of that. And in terms of how that plays out in our league, you know, we we as we mentioned, we have basically a ten week season. So you will play if you play ten games. You will also referee a share of those. So so you might have a six o'clock game. And at seven o'clock, your team is responsible for providing up and down refs, line judges, and a scorekeeper. So five of your four to five of your people need to be there in order to do that. Um, and that 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 does once again uh, help further the community aspect because you have to be present and and when you're not playing, you have to be involved with others who aren't on your team. Um, it helps remove some of the subject the, the subjectivity that might happen. Um, if people are self-refereeing their games, I mean, if the teams are responsible for, for maintaining their own um, uh, referee duties. And then the other aspect of that, I think that, that it is good is, uh, as Kramer mentioned, it really helps you de develop skills. So to see how the game is played out, to learn about that. And, and in particular, you know, one thing that Matthew is really good about because it's so knowledgeable is helping share, the, share that knowledge. So we run referee clinics, and as you kind of skill up, you get more sophisticated referee, um, quote unquote, training or skill development. And then the mentorship um, program also helps with that because maybe as a competitive player, 
I'm on a team with intermediate people and some of whom have never refereed before. So part of what I would try to do is maybe demonstrate for them in the first set and have one of them give it a shot in the second set. And because everybody knows that we're all volunteers and we're all learning, if somebody mess up, messes up a referee call, it's also not the end of the world. So it's, it's another positive aspect of our league. So did, did that start out of necessity? Because we still currently with, you know, the group that we have, we just kind of call our own stuff, right? Whenever we're playing, I mean, whenever we do playoffs, I think we, we, we've certainly used referees at that point, but are the people in the league, is it harder, you know, for harder for people in, in the league to call, you know, some of their own things like in terms of takes, that and you know other other faults i guess i think it, it, it takes away that res go ahead kramer uh, i was gonna say it, it it falls in part i think on the trying to maintain a certain level of play in each division um that that having somebody officiating and 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 kind of uh what what's the word i'm looking for um facilitating the game mm -hmm. helps ensure a level of play more effectively. Um, you know, it's not, it's some, somebody who's up on the ref stand is, is understands what, what level of play we're looking for, for that division's game and can, can help achieve it a little more effectively than trying to have teams coming to a consensus about a particular call. And sometimes they may argue and, you know with each other and and somebody's got to make the decision mm -hmm. uh, you know so it, it, it i think it, it solves it solves problems uh by by averting them uh in a way especially yeah especially on close calls where maybe oh was there a nut touch or not and and team a thinks somebody on tv touched the net um and and we can you know touch the tape and we can make a call on whether whether or not that happened that doesn't fall on either playing teams or whether the ball was in or out and so it does help take a little bit of pressure off again this is for fun but even when people are playing volleyball for fun they can get really into it <laughs> you know and mm -hmm. um i think that it does it, it takes that level of pressure down a little bit mm -hmm. yeah makes sense yeah uh, you know maybe maybe we'll get there over over the years, but yeah, we're still at a point where we're just kind of self-refereeing and you know, that seems to work except for maybe playoffs or if, if money is on the line. Yep. Especially with doubles on the grass, it's probably a lot easier to, to call your own play. Um, yeah, I think a that's lot, a good point. A lot going on with six people on the court on each side. <laughs> right, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're one person with another person and you're pretty able to, to tell, you know, if, if the person across the net touched the net or if you touched the net, yeah, yeah. I guess with six people, the complexity of everything, every, every body movement going on, <laughs> yeah, it makes it a little harder. I, I was just thinking of one other thing that is kind of unique, and I know we're almost at time, that is unique about our league. I don't, you, you see it some other places, but we have a rule called typewriting and that is a rule where in the sort of like up, where, wherever we're using middles, so the upper levels of play where we have people in particular positions, um, a typewriting is a special rule that, that was we added. Created, we created this rule. <laughs> oh, oh really? I wasn't sure if we had. I, I thought maybe, but I didn't want to claim that. Um, yeah, specific to steel. Because middles are so hard to come by. And if we have 13 teams and we only have 17 middles, 
you know, the, the middles typically don't play in the back row. They get subbed out by a libero. So one of the things we instituted was something called typewriting, which allows a middle to basically move through the, the front three positions and the libero to move through the corresponding back three. And then when they get to the end of their row to actually loop back around to that same front and back row spot. So if you were mm -hmm. in the back row moving um, from four to three to two, on the next sort of change of point, you would go back to four. And in the back row, if you were moving from um, you know one to six to five, you would move back to one with the um, with 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 the sort of changeover of of control. So that is that's a rule that allows us to build out more teams by having middles just play through. And the middles actually get more play time if the alternative was them not have not being able to be on the court at all. It actually gives them an opportunity to play back row. Um, I'm sorry, to, to play on the court more rather than standing by for half the game while they watch their corresponding middle, you know, do their thing. Right. Because most, yeah, most, you know, most players are on the court the whole time, right? I guess, yep. except, well, not, not all. I mean, not everybody plays all the way around, but yeah, that, I think that makes for a lot sure. of sense, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's made our lives easier when we go to build teams. We had, Kramer, do you remember how many competitive teams we had in the last season? 17, it was I think. A, yeah, an insane 17 teams just in the competitive division. And I think we had 21 middles. And that was including people who expressed the interest in playing middle as a secondary interest. So we did not have enough middles to go around and typewriting made it possible for us to build our teams the way that we needed to. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, there's just a, yeah. just a, a shortage, of, shortage of, of middles. Makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I know, uh, Matthew, you have to run. We're at time. So I, I, I just, you know, really want to say sincerely, Andrew, Matthew, I, I appreciate you doing this. This was, this was really fun. If, Likewise, Ned. If people listening want to learn more about SCVL, Andrew or Matthew, can you just maybe um, give a little bit more information there? Yeah, you can look us up online. Our website is steelcityvolleyball.org, or you can look up Steel City Volleyball League on Facebook. Um, either one of those places are fairly reasonable uh, sources of information about the league. We post things related to seasons there. I think Facebook is probably a little more active, although again, lately without running the season, there's not, there's not much happening there. If you join our website, or if you go to our website, you can sign up for our email list. But if you follow our Facebook page, when we do post updates, you'll see those as well. So those would probably be the two best places to find out about the league. Awesome. Andrew, Matthew, again, sincerely appreciate it. And we'll, uh, we'll talk more soon, okay? Yeah, very happy to be with you. Thanks, Ed.